Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Chapter 2 of Shemot, verse 6. I believe last week we, we, not, we, we finished reading it and did all the Rashis, but I feel like we did the last Rashi very quickly. And I think uh, I remember the class ending before we... <coughs> Um, had kind of resolved all the, the comments or questions. So let, let's, let's start with that. And then if we don't need to linger, we won't linger. So I'll just get us, get us started. Chapter two, verse six, Vatiftach. And she opened, she assumedly the Bat Paro, although there was a question from previous verses to whether it's she or her ama, her handmaiden. Is it her handmaiden or her hand who's reaching out to the, um, to the Teva, to the ark in which the baby is. Vatirehu, she saw it or saw him at Hayeled, the boy. And we parse that many different ways, which is quite interesting. The, the, the extent to which we wanted to give any meaning to the double direct object, the one built into the verb and the one that stands by itself. Vihinei na'ar, and behold, it was a na'ar, it was a lad. And we talked about, and Rashi talked about the interesting um, notion that this is uh, not a, the description of a baby, but a na'ar is used to describe, you know, Yosef when he's going to play with his brothers. He named na'ar boche. It was a um, a lad crying. Uh, and we'll look at the Rashi one more time again to describe what what does it mean to say that it was a lad's cry. V'tachmolalav, she had mercy upon him. V'atomer, and she said, mi'aldei ha'ivrim zeh. This is from the Hebrew uh, children. Okay. So we spent a long time on the verse, I think even the previous week. Um, and the last Rashi that we read was Rashi on Vihine Na'ar Boche. And Rashi says two words, which is, um, uh, but saying a lot in two words, right? Kolo uh, Kana'ar. His voice was like a lad's, meaning, don't read it, A, that the text made a mistake, God forbid. Don't read it to believe that, that Na'ar means both lad and baby. Na'ar does mean lad. Read it to mean that this was a three-month-old child who actually was just full term, if we buy the previous Midrash. But he let out a gashrai that was the full-throated gashrai of a Na'ar to suggest that either he had kind of like a, a, a will to live and be heard. Um, or once again, as we saw from a previous Rashi, that God was in this place and I did not know it, to borrow a Genesisian phrase, right? That God is controlling the action here and somehow God produced or, or strung out from this little baby um, a, the, the type of cry that would catch the attention of someone who otherwise might not have, have, have paid so much attention. So that's how we ended things, but we did it at like, 929 last week and I wanted to make sure that before we went to the next verse if there were comments or questions on the Rashi or things that you want to now say differently about the verse based on that Rashi I wanted to open it up so um, let's 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 see if there are comments or questions Rick you're unmuted does that mean you want to say something um yes please um, I can't raise my hand. The the chat thing on the side, it, it's that not open or something? I don't know. Uh, that should be. Is it not? Um, I can talk to you. I can chat to you, but it, no, the, raise, the raise hand bar isn't there for some reason. Someone no. just did it, so it's possible. Uh, maybe, it's not, maybe it's mine. I don't know. Anyway, because um, Larry asked me to look at the Haftorah this week, Jeremiah is also calling himself a Na'ar when uh, God is asking him to uh, um, start his uh, profession uh, speaking, um, prophesizing. He says, I can't do that. I'm just a Na'ar. So it's this week. So I just thought I'd throw that in. Thank you, Rick. Um, Marshall. Got to unmute Marshall. Nice mug, Rick. Got it. Sorry. Uh, I don't know if we mentioned it last week, but uh, Robert Alter mentioned that it might also be relevant that Na'ar occurs elsewhere as a term of parental tenderness, referring to a, a vulnerable child. Mm. So surely this baby in the 
the wicker basket is uh, is vulnerable. Yeah, right. It, it, it's it's if you go that way, it's possible to evade Rashi and say it's not that his voice was not our, but the scene, this, the, the 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 scene evoked the response that that um, of tenderness that 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 not our you know describes right. Um, but e- either way, the word is worth um, is worth mentioning because in a precise text such as the Torah, when there was there were kind of more obvious word choices. This one uh, deserves attention. Um, and I'll remind you the way Everett Fox had translated it. We did it last week. She opened it and saw him, comma, the child. That's the double direct object. Here, comma, a boy weeping, exclamation point. So he, he kind of cheats a little bit and turns Na'ar into boy, which is anodyne, right? Like he, 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 do, he doesn't, Everett Fox would actually take this stance against Rashi and others saying, no, this is not an interesting use of the word na'ar. It's just a way of saying a male child, right? She pitied him. Interesting translation of fatahmol, because pity is different than uh, mercy, right? And she said, one of the Hebrews' child is this. So he makes some interesting choices in that translation. Every, every translation, every verse translation is, is is an adventure okay um any last things on this verse before we move forward all right then let's move forward uh alan do you want to read verse seven for us okay Vatomer Achoto El Batparo Haelech Verkarati Lach Isha Meneket Min Haivriot Vetenek Lach Et Hayalad. And the sister of, uh, uh, and, and his sister, Moses' sister, said to the daughter of Pharaoh, this is this ha'elah. Did we do this? This was the question. Shall I, shall I go and we'll call for you a uh, a woman to suckle, a woman from, a Hebrew woman to suckle uh, the uh, the boy, v'tanech lachet ha'yelet, and uh, just bring for you the, the boy to suckle. Yes, now that you translated it, I realized that we went back one more verse than I intended because we actually did do this verse last week. So I'm not going to apologize to you for uh, overstudying a verse of Torah because uh, Chazara, uh, uh, repeating what you've learned is a good thing in our tradition, but it's not what I intended. So correct. This was actually the verse that we rushed through, not the previous verse. So now we're going to get to yeah. the slower. Yeah, it was that notion of, you mentioned something, Roger, was Hayaled instead of Hayeled. And I, I didn't understand grammatically why that was. So maybe we can just talk, just repeat that again for me, please, if possible. Sure. So yeled is in the family of nouns called the segolate nouns, where there are two syllables. Each vowel is a segol. And when those words appear in a pausal part of a verse, either a sof pasuk, end of the verse, or an etnachta, the kama, the and you know this instinctively from some words, many of us do. The first segel turns into a kamatz. Hamotzi lechemin ha. Right. Some right. people are very, very precise and say ha gefen because they believe that the that the that the the the, the move from a segolate noun to an a eh is only for biblical verse, not for liturgy, and that it's like. Um, it's it, it's a uh, too high brow to apply that form to a rabbinically written blessing as opposed to a, a biblical verse, but it's in every biblical verse. Um, and since the word is yeled and it's in the pausal place of a sofasuk, it becomes yaled. Right? Correct. And we talked about the word ha or the letter ha in front of ha-elech. Ha, when ha it comes from a verb as opposed to a noun, it's not the definite article, the, it's, it creates an interrogative. Okay. Um, so uh, we actually did spend some time in this verse and what we, the, the Rashi that we rushed through was not the Rashi that I just read us uh, from um, Na'ar Bocheh, 
but this Rashi. So, so let's read this Rashi again. And, and now if there are comments and thoughts on that Rashi, we'll linger on that a little bit. So, uh, um, Alan, please read this Rashi on Minha Ivriot, that, that, that the, and the question that Rashi is answering is how it came to be. And one of you asked this question in a different form last week, how it came to be that the initial request, it seems to be, um, uh, Miriam to the daughter of Pharaoh is, uh, hey, I'll get you a Hebrew, a Hebrew midwife. Particularly, we think about, I think it was a comment that Rick made last week when we imagine how quickly this whole scene is unfolding. Rashi's answer is going to slow down the scene a little bit. So go ahead, read the Rashi. Min ha'ivriot shahazi rato al mitzviot harbe linak linok you know, from, from the Hebrews that they, they brought the boy, uh, to many Egyptian women, but he did not suckle because, uh, in the future he was going to be speaking with the Shekhinah. Right. Right. So we talked about how this was in some ways a, uh, an unpleasant midrash to read through because it's explaining that the, the, the reason why Miriam ends up offering a Hebrew midwife, and let's call it what it is, a Hebrew breast, a Hebrew milk to Moshe is not the initial offer. First, she, Shehechazirato, right? That Shehechazirato, that she brought him. And I assume I assume that Rashi means that the she here is the daughter of Pharaoh, that the daughter of Pharaoh had taken Moshe and brought him around to all these Egyptian midwives. He refused to suckle, right? And, 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 that, and the reason why he refused to suckle is because this baby somehow knew, or God again was orchestrating the scene, that one day that mouth was going to have to be tahor, so tahor so as to speak to the Shekhinah, to the Holy One, and therefore couldn't sully itself by speaking or by suckling from a treif breast, right? Yeah, but you know, from, from, a, from a shot level, just on a timeline, I mean, she finds she had the opportunity to go around to all these different people, and then you call it, 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 it it's, it's not the shot, it, it's just, it's, it has to be drush, given the, the timing of what took place. Or in the interim, she was supplementing with formula. But I'm bummed, right? Um, <laughs> before I call on Larry and Diane, if your eyes are good enough, um, Alan, can you read footnote 48? Because it adds what Rashi says on the Talmudic text from which this Rashi comment on the Torah is drawn. Okay. Hang on. I've got to find, I've got the big book here, but I've got to find where 48 is. It's on page Ted Zion. Okay. Right underneath the Rashi paragraph, there's a little footnote 48. I got 39, 39. Hang on, Rashi. What page? Yeah. Are you Hang on. No, I got it here. 48. I see where it's 48. I just have to find where 48. It's just it says, Im Hashkina. Hang on. 48. Uh, here we go. Amar Hakadosh Baruch Hu, Pesha Tiler Bem Hashkina, Yanak Davar Tameh. With a question mark exclamation point implied there. So this is a quote from the Talmud. And what did the Talmud say? From, from Gemara, Shame. Well, hold on, hold on. Translate that. And the Gemara states. And there's a, I don't know, Ufe, Ferrar. Wait, no, just go. Oh, Ferrashi. Go, go, Alan, go back and translate what you just read. Amar Kadosh Baruch Hu. Amar Kadosh Baruch Hu. That God said, Amar, that, that a mouth that in the future will speak with the Shechina, uh, will suckle from uh, from something from uh, uh, uh on of uh, tame impure or not 
for lack of a better translation, from an impure thing. Right. So the Talmud basically says in God's in God's voice, what are you crazy? We're gonna let this mouth be nursed and nourished by an Egyptian woman? No way. And on that Talmudic line, remember that Rashi does a linear commentary not only on the entire Bible, but also on the entire Talmud. He was not a nachschlepper. He got a lot done in his life. And that um, that Teva is correct. Uperesh Rashi. And Rashi explained there. Go ahead. Uperesh Rashi. Davar tamei zo shachilata dvarim tameim bahatinok toem Bechalev kol min shetach tochel. Okay, so what does that mean? Kol ma shetochel, slicha. Davar, an impure thing, this, that, sheachilta, achilata, that it is fed, dvarim, or that, dvarim teim, impure things, and the, and the tinok and the baby toim tastes uh, its milk on all. And I'm missing something here. Called Mashatoka on all that he eats. Right, it got very close. Right, so Zosh Achilata, this woman Achilata, who's eating? It's the gerund who's Achila who's eating. Is filled uh, with varim tmeim. Oh, I get it. So that it is like this is a woman who eats treif, and how can she be the one to be able to suckle someone who's going to be speaking with the tzachina? Because the tinok, the baby toim, tastes bechelba in her milk, everything that she ate. Rashi on the on the Tanakh, sorry, Rashi on the Talmud is a bit softer than Rashi in the Tanakh here. Rashi on the Talmud is saying. The problem is not like a, ra- a, a, a racial ethnic problem. It's a food problem. It's a foodstuff problem. The Egyptian woman, and, for, and, and put aside the, the anachronism of the, about, you know, kosher and treif in a world where this hasn't been revealed yet, right? The problem is that the Egyptian woman is going to eat shellfish um, and, and, uh, and, and cheeseburgers, and some of that is going to come from the milk that she offers, which means that this this um, baby is going to eat treif without having tried to, and that uh, it's not appropriate for someone who's going to speak the Shekhinah. The way it reads in our text is something a little bleaker, right? That it's it, as if it's conceptually untoward that a baby would get nourished and suckled by someone who's not from the from the Israelite people, and and that's an even harder one for us to kind of like. Ra ra Rashian, but that's how Rashi reads the the interlude that explains why Miriam would have the chutzpah to say, "Hey, I have a solution for you. A solution to what problem? The problem is that the baby won't nurse." Okay, Diane, Larry, and then Elon. Okay, so this is me. First of all, I agree completely with what Ellen said. It's very problematic that the question would be raised as it's being raised, given the timeline. There's no to this question whatsoever. Because the alternative explanation that, that the sister would say, should I get a Hebrew uh, wet nurse, either because it was in her interest to do so, which we, which we believe and know, or because this wet nurse would want to nurse this child that the, that the Pharaoh's daughter already identified as being uh, a, a Hebrew, or as I read somewhere and I can't remember, there was some tradition. Maybe Tovah mentioned it last time. Some tradition of the of, of the Hebrew women um, nurses. But leave that aside for a moment. So the fact that they had to, that Rashi had to, and Chizkuni as well, had to comment on this uh, makes it even more impressive and disconcerting that they came up with this very racist view. However, I think Chizkuni has it better than Rashi. Because Chizkuni inverts this. So rather than say that that um, Moses, Moses' sister is being the racist for not wanting to have Moses on the breast of, a, of, a, um, of an impure woman, 
Chizkuni says that the reason was that the Egyptian wet nurses themselves were racist and they would refuse to nurse Hebrew children. That at least puts the onus on the Egyptians for having this bias or bigotry, which maybe makes more sense, as opposed to saying our side, Hebrews, whatever, wouldn't dare touch that um, that that um, Gentile trait. So, so wait, I got to jump in here because you have to remember that that the Egyptians think that the Hebrew ch- male children should be thrown into the um, into the water. So, all the more reason that they won't want to necessarily nurse a Hebrew baby. Right. That's another. That being the fourth reason why we wouldn't even need this discussion. Absolutely unnecessary. It's like going out of your way to prove that you're being, I'm going to say it, going out of your way to prove that you're a racist. Better just to keep your mouth shut. The fourth reason why we even Sorry, for a second, the Facebook Live started to be, be the volume on, and you were hearing yourself twice. Keep going, that last sentence. It, 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 would, it would be like someone going out of their way to prove that they're being a racist. Better to keep your mouth shut. Better not to make a comment on this than to have made it. I know I'm being very judgmental, but you know me. I'm yeah. like I see it. Yeah. No, I want to I, I want to say a bunch of responses to that because you, you said a lot of really great stuff. And then we'll hear Elon's comment. Um, first of all, you're right. S- sometimes Rashi complicates things for no reason. And sometimes the result of his complicating things for so, no reason is a beautiful nugget. Right. And sometimes when he complicates things for no reasons, it's a non-beautiful nugget. So I'm with you on that. And I do, th- and I had not read his Kuni, And I, I do think that his comment is both easier to digest and makes more sense in the shot of the story. Um, uh, particularly as we, as it, it amplifies the, uh, the uniqueness of Bat Paro, who was willing to have mercy on a Hebrew child when everyone else in her culture would not have been, come near it, right? Like Chizkini somehow, by by explaining how the Egyptians would not have agreed to nurse, I mean, forget about, as Diane said, not nurse, they would have wanted to kill the baby. It, it amplifies what the, what Bat Paro is willing to do. Um, so so that part is, is, is a wonderful addition. Um, I, I know that I know that you know that I know that you know that the way you're using some of the, the modern 21st century language is, is obviously just, it's just hard to graph onto 11th century, let alone second or third century. And also a reminder, we, and I, I'm saying this out loud because I have to remind myself of this kind of all the time as I live in, I live in my world, but informed by their world. Like my, my value system, our value system inform, is informed by a chain of transmission through eras that were wildly different than ours. And their relationship with, and I'm going to use this term intentionally, but it's not my voice, the Goyim. It's just so very different than ours. And the Goyim were treif. And the Goyim wanted to kill them. And the Goyim um, were not to be uh, approached. Masechat Avodah Zarah in the Talmud is like 60 pages of, of you know, couched in legalese, the 60 pages of the rabbi saying, stay away, stay away, because they infect and 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 it's and it's and it's and it's, and it's no good. So in in the coming out of the mouth of the rabbis of the Talmud, of the, of the, of the mouth of Rashi, living you know Rashi living through crusades, the rabbis living in exile in Babylonia or under um, kind of Roman rule in Jerusalem, and and writing only for their own um, their own consumption. The idea of saying that we wouldn't want the baby Moshe to be you know, swallowing any diluted treif from a non-Jewish woman's breast breast would not smack to them as racist, right? Obviously, it would smack to them as 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 normative and differently than someone might say, "Hey, you know, an, an 1830 uh, white plantation owner didn't didn't think of himself as racist either, right?" I think it's in, in a very different way we could say that about their relationship with the non-Jews, and still, I'm also troubled by it. Right. But I wanted I wanted to like contextualize your contextualization a little bit. Um, uh, Elon and then Rick and then Steve. Yeah, you covered basically everything I was going to say, although I would say one thing, which is, in fact, it, it was racist. But who cares? Meaning that they were getting the crap beat out of them by the non-Jews. 
So was it racist? Yeah. Did they think the non-Jewish people were bad people? Yeah. In the context of that time, was that a terrible thing? Uh, it's, I, I wouldn't say it was. I mean, if I, if I was living in, uh, in 11th century France or in early 20th century Russia or in late 15th century Spain and I didn't feel particularly uh, positive towards the non-Jewish community, I don't think I would be a bad guy. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we've mentioned a version of this before that their their revolt, their resistance was literary, right? The the Jews' resistance to what they were living through was to make fun of Esau, was to to use word games to make Goliath's, you know, to make fun of Goliath's mother uh, and to suggest that Moshe would not deign to suckle from an Egyptian breast because that's, that's kind of all they had. They had, they, they had, they did have the power of the word. The, the autobiography um, by uh, Rabbi David Weiss Halivni, who is now sadly at the very end of his life, but throughout his life has been really the world's leading Talmud scholar. And I spoken about him here and there before he used to teach at JTS. And then he taught, I, I studied with him at Columbia. He was absolute, uh, Ilui genius. He was ordained as a rabbi in Poland back when being ordained didn't mean like five years of postgraduate study after your BA, but it meant studying for the exams. He was ordained as a rabbi at age like 11 or 12 and was a child rabbi in Auschwitz uh, with his best friend, Elie Wiesel. And his autobiography, which I commend to all of you to read, is called The Book and the Sword. Uh, um, and the relationship in the Jewish psyche between the book and the sword, including how sometimes the book is the sword, right? So here we have an example of the book being the sharpest thing they have to do social critique and to push against um, what they're living through. So so uh, I fully accept what you said, Elon. Uh, Rick, Steve, Sue, Mazel Tov, Sue, and Barry. Go ahead, Rick. Um, hi. Um, I just kind of wanted to clarify, and, and I see Barbara's uh, uh, comment in the chat. Um, if I'm just a simple guy, I don't know this stuff, so my apologies to all the women in the class. But um, if you haven't given birth lately, isn't isn't it tough to suckle a, a kid? So if it was just Miriam and the Pharaoh's daughter who hadn't had a kid lately. Um, that to me would be the perfect situation to bring the actual mother who uh who was uh suckling them up to that point so it, it's it's like um it, to me it wasn't going to all the egyptian wet nurses it was just a deal between this pharaoh's daughter who wanted to keep it secret not to go against her father's uh, rule and and the happenstance of um of miriam being there but i mean it's not happenstance but yeah, um, correct. It's, you're, you're saying a version of what Larry was saying, which is that there, there's an e- elegant resolution to some of the issues in this verse, just on a shot level. Right? You, don't, you, don't, you don't need Rashi's image of going around to the Egyptians. It, it's, it's someone needed to nurse this baby. It wouldn't have made sense to bring it to an Egyptian midwife. I've got a solution for you. Um, one of the times that you were talking, Rick, your head turned to the side for a second, and we saw those beautiful curls in the back of your hair. Like, I mean, as someone who's been who's been resisting going to a barber, I'm, I'm I'm with you in the trenches, but you only see it from the side. So, no haircut since March. Look, look, looking looking good makes you even more disc jockey ish. Steve, Susan, Barry, Stevie. Yeah, you know, uh, last week we talked about the Shekinah, the divine presence, and you know, and when we talk about this story now, it's like, you know, when I, we, we talk about the minutia, but it's like, you know, the hand of God is in this story and everything that happens now is, it it feels to me like he's maneuvering everything to go where he wants it to go. So, you know, of course she's going to be, you know, unbeknownst to her, whether she wants to or not, a Jewish woman is going to, going to nurse this child because that's what God wants, because he wants this child raised in a Jewish home to a certain point, you know, so that he can identify. So everything leads to the, the end of the story. So, you know, whether or not, you know, whatever, whether there's the racism or all this stuff, which all makes sense. I mean, it's all perfectly valid. It's this, there's logic to it that is not going to seem correct because God's pushing it in this direction. Yeah. Have any of you ever been in a meeting where the presenter, rather than using a um, 
like uh, um, I can't think of it. The, the, rather than using a standard way of doing a um, a slideshow, uses a Prezi, right? Um, a, a Prezi is interesting. It's just it's just another way of doing a. Uh, I can't think of the word. Um, Microsoft, whatever. Um, PowerPoint. Yes. So instead of doing a PowerPoint, which is just slides, a Prezi is slightly more dynamic where you're looking at a certain slide and then it like it pulls out and you see how that slide fits into like like a whole network of things. It's actually just a really interesting way of, of doing something. And you're right that but, but when we, we the way we're studying text, which is one of the ways the Jews study text is to zoom in on the letter, on the letter and the word and, and the comma. Right. And what the what Midrash does is pull out occasionally say, oh, like, just remember, reader, that this is all happening um, under the supervision and, you know, with the word used, manipulation of the Holy One. And it wouldn't be happening where, if the Holy One did not want it to happen that way. Correct. And, um, and, th- and then that impacts our sense of the will and perhaps then the morality of the other characters who are, ple- uh, who are present. And remember this mini conversation when we get to the, 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 the terrible and terribly important moral conversation we're going to have once we get to Pharaoh's punishment in the plagues, right? We're going we're gonna to be dealing with that for 10 plagues in a row. Um, and we're going to be dealing with it slow. So it's going to hurt, right? This punishment of a human being whose sin seemed to have been directed by the Holy One. Right, the hardening of the heart, and then the punishment for the hardening of the heart. So sometimes zooming out to see that God is in control helps us understand a scene, and sometimes zooming out and seeing God is in control would make us wish that we were just actually watching human beings and um, interact of their own accord. Um, I want to before uh, I call on Sue, I want to go back to one comment that Norm made before on the side. Can it be a trafe breast? I thought all human milk is kosher and parv. Um, so. Um, halachically, right? Uh, human milk is parav. Um, I've never actually thought about the question whether or not all human milk is kosher. I suppose it should be. I can't, I don't know why it wouldn't be, but I've never actually thought of the question. And remember that, um, as I mentioned before, that these kinds of halachic anachronisms or partial anachronisms, the rabbis had no problem with. They had no problem suggesting that there might have been a concern that, um, that, that a baby moshi wouldn't keep kosher, but it doesn't have to necessarily respond to all of the kashu laws of the Shulchan Aruch uh, in terms of the status, the status of milk. So the rabbis partially borrow from the later legal tradition and throw that onto our characters just to give it some color. Uh, Sue, Simon Tov, and and then Barry, and then Stevie. Hi. Hi. Uh, and and Mazel Tov to Rabbi Klickfeld, who <laughs> officiated at a you know, pandemic wedding and it was, you know, they had its challenges, but it was all quite lovely. So thank you. Um, I, I just, two, one thing I just, the, the, I had no idea that human breast milk was parv. That's kind of interesting. Um, to harken back to what Elon said earlier, you know, I don't know, it's kind of, we've sort of gone past it now, but I was just thinking about how, you know, look, there's plenty of people today who don't buy German products who on purpose would not go or, or who attempt just in their own, you know, kind of uh, personal way. They're not going to go drive a BMW or. Oh, you somehow muted yourself mid-sentence, Sue. There you go. Last thing we heard you say was BMW. Yeah, people won't, don't get a, you know, there are people today who kind of try not to, yeah, you wouldn't be able to because plenty of the things that we use every day are, are German made. But, you know, in, as a, in an effort to, I know lots of people who would not, you know, purposefully uh, try not to go buy German stuff or something like that. It reminded me that, yeah, you get your butt kicked by a certain kind of people. And uh, in fact, you may, do things differently. Yeah. So what was the first thing you said when you started speaking? You said something that I wanted to comment on, but I forgot. Parv, that it, human it, breast milk is parv. How unusual. Oh, oh, yes. So, so to give you just a, a window into the, into like the rabbinic mind, do you know why human breast milk is parv? No. It ha- it's parv because it has to be. Because, because, because babies sometimes nurse past when they're eating um, real food and it just made it just made no sense to to either say you're flashed up 
Right, that a human toddler couldn't eat meat, or that a human toddler couldn't, that there would be any moment that a human toddler shouldn't be able to, to feed from its mother, or to say that a human toddler is eating trade. So it's, it's, it's part of because there's no other way to, to make the situation happen. So it, it, I, I'm just, I wish I could have been there when the rabbis were thinking about this for the first time. And like, wait, I got a solution. We'll call it parav. You know, well done, well done. Good, good idea, good solution, good solution. Because that's the only way to handle it, really. Um, Barry. So uh, uh, rather than focus on uh, the uh, the prophecy of uh, Pharaoh's daughter, I prefer to focus on the prophecy of Miriam, uh, whose uh, strength was brought her parents together to uh, give birth to uh, conceive and give birth to uh, Moshe and watching him and knowing that this is uh, something very special and watching him there and ensuring uh, by her statements that uh, it would be um, uh, Moshe's mom uh, who would be the one nursing him and raising him. So I'd rather, I prefer to uh, see her prophecy here than uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Yeah, great. Um, And and then adding to that, the comment that either Diane or Larry put in on the side that we're we're, we're not focusing enough perhaps on on Miriam's character, her courage, uh, her, her holy chutzpah to say, um, right. It's actually almost more interesting to imagine not, Miriam not as a shlicha from God forced into doing this, but saying, "I'm going to I'm going to resolve this with my own ingenuity." The same way that she we did focus on it when she in the midrash spoke to her father about uh, his his own cruelty in separating from Yochebed. Uh Stevie. Um, so I went on a little bit of a safari source text uh, rabbit hole. Um, and the the Talmud, in addition to bringing up this, you know, r- potentially racial aspect, is also based on this verse from Isaiah, um, which is in a Haftorah from somewhere. I don't remember exactly which Haftorah, but the one with Tzavlitzav, Pavlikav uh, stuff. Um, but the verse is that, uh, right, who's God going to speak to... Um, someone who's, you know, just been weaned um, and it's about someone's youth and like not complicating things with, you know, not complicating God's message with, you know, their own adult related uh, baggage. Um, And the, the Talmud is rereading the last half, the last quarter of the verse to say, instead of, being taken away from the breast, being another expression of youth, but being somehow being choosy or picky, and that that somehow is also a, you know, valuable thing in learning Torah, even though the shot of Isaiah is possibly the opposite. Um, I don't know what to do with that, but I thought it was interesting and worth bringing up. I'll tell you one thing. I'll add one thing to help you figure out what to do with it. Guess what Parsha that's from? Guess what Haftorah that's from? Shmot, right? That 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 haftarah is read, you know, as a dessert to these verses. So as you're mulling over what to do with it, it the the rabbis were also mulling over what to do with it. Um, so so that's 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 a nice connection, Stevie. Thank you for that. Um, okay, uh, I, I think I think we finished the verse that we read last week. <laughs> we're finally getting to some new material. Um, all right. Uh, Sue, in celebration of uh, Sivan and Mel, would you like to read verse Chet, please? Sure. I'd be happy to. Glasses. Um, <clears throat> chet. Is chet, chet, is chet nine or eight? Eight. <laughs> okay. Vatomer la bat paro lechi and she said, and um, uh, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go, go. And the, the, um, and the young, the young one went and she called the mother of the, of the child. Great. Uh, tell me about, your your word choice, which I approve, but I'm tell me your thinking about how how you translated Alma as the young one. 
Uh, I didn't. I had a, I had a, uh, yeah. I had an assist. I have a translation assist, and it says maiden, and that seems silly. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, I used to not have the translation assist, but I've become weak. <laughs> um, the, the root ayin lamed mem is an, is an interesting root that we haven't spent a whole lot of time. We haven't come up up to it, um, and it's interesting. It's an interesting word, and therefore it's an interesting word choice. And so I'm kind of building up to Rashi here. So um, alma sometimes means, particularly in, in prophetic literature, in in, in navi, uh, a virgin. It's because of the word alma that some, you know, messianists and, and medieval Spaniards uh, believed that verses in Isaiah was predicting the Virgin Mary. Um, interestingly, there's another use of the word. Is, are Leonard and Rebecca here? I can't, I haven't, I'm not seeing the whole group, so I don't know if they're here. Are you here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, so I am Lamed Mem uh, also means in, and this is used a lot in halachic literature, um, uh, like a, a, an, an omission, um, a mistake, um, to, and in, in modern Hebrew means um, to 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 disappear. Ne'elam, um, right? Lotit alem in the Torah is do not do not restrain yourself from helping someone, right? Do not do not disappear yourself in the presence of a, an obligatory act. My guess is that that Ayin Lamed Mem is, is an entirely different route than this Ayin Lamed Mem. Even so, it's an interesting choice because Miriam has been referred to so far as Achoto, right? Vatomer Achoto, Vatetatsav Achoto. So every time that Miriam has appeared in the scene of Moshe going down the water, she's been referred to not by name, but by his sister. So we could have expected after verse seven began, Vatomer Achoto Bat Paro. Verse eight had been Vatomer La Bat Paro Lechi, Vatelech Achoto, and his sister, because that's the reference, went. So because of that, and because it doesn't say his sister, and because the word choice, Alma, is an interesting and not, it's not the simplest way to refer to a woman of that age. Na'ara, um, um, and others, right? So, so that's one. That's the engine for what Rashi is uh, about to say. I see some que- hands up before we get to the Rashi. So, Rebecca Leonard. Hi. So, uh, yes, there are two separate words with the same root letters. The first meaning to hide and conceal, and the second one meaning to be strong, specifically to be mature sexually. So that's where the Elwim comes from. But right. then I saw something else, because I always thought that, you know, that was a mistranslation over there that the Christians said that Alma means virgin and not a young woman, and that was just a mistranslation. But it turns out that one of the cognates for Alma in Phoenician actually means virgin. Interesting. Right. So, um, and and it's the first half of the second uh, definition that Rashi is going to base on this notion of ayin lamed mem, maturity, but 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 strength and vigor, right? Like like, and, and I, I suppose the way you connect that is that like sexual maturity, at least having the the possibility of having that vigor, whether or not it's actually been acted upon, is the question as to whether or not it references virginity. So so keep in mind, folks, as we get to the Rashi, that notion of lm. I am a mem as strength or vigor. Uh, Alan, Rick, and then Diane, Larry. Yeah, the Shorish Ayin Lamed Mem would also be for Olam, world. So it's interesting to think we're talking about world as being part of sexual maturity, or the world being part of disappearing. Uh, in thirty yeah. years of thinking about Hebrew letters actively, I've never thought about that. I've never thought about the sh- the the shoresh of olam. It's one of the words you just like take for granted. Um, like, like I've never thought of the shoresh of left and bread. So, Leonard, if you got something, we'd love to hear it. Okay. Uh, it's uh, in, uh, it means world or eternity. That's olam, that is. But uh, that's only in post-biblical Hebrew. Huh. That would be an interesting exploration, how... 
like which use of I and Leonard, does it, does it say there, Leonard, to which of the biblical I and Lamed Mems it might be connected to? Well, hold on one second here. Uh, I just looked up Alam and Alma, so hold on a second. I didn't actually look up Alam, so give me one second here to turn the page. Oh, um... Okay. You know, there's also uh, there's a, there's Alim also, which I mean, I mean, if we're gonna play it with the roots and the extra letters and the missing letters, and you know, there's it's it's both with um, uh, uh, Chesed that she took the baby, but there's also something kind of violent about the whole situation as well. Oh, like we're Alimut, you mean? Like yeah, Al- isn't that an Allah? Maybe. <laughs> Olive Ian Iceberg Greenberg Goldberg. I think I think Ali I think Alimut violence is an Aleph. Okay. Uh what, what do you have, uh, Leonard? So according to some scholars, uh these words, the Olam words that is, literally mean the hidden unknown time. Wow. And derived from the base meaning to hide. According to several other scholars, the above words are related to the Akkadian Ulu or Ulanu, meaning a remote time. Particularly when I think about how Hebrew um, forges together um, eternity in space and time, like Olam means world and Lit Olam means forever. There is something um, with no end to it, like that vastness. But, but and and therefore unknowable. So that that etymological connection is uh, makes sense. But thank you for the question, uh, Alan. Cause I, I I don't think I'd ever actively or consciously thought about why Olam means Olam. Uh, Rick, oh, a lot of hands. Rick, Larry, Diane, Barry, Tova, Marshall. Hi, um, the Alma here. Um, I want to go back to the um, the one handmaiden that was still left there, standing next to the daughter after the other ones got driven away by the angel because they were protesting that she was going to go against uh, Pharaoh's uh, order. So it makes more sense to me. She sends an adult handmaiden to go tell Yocheved, hey, it's okay for you to come to the palace. She's not going to believe Miriam if Miriam comes up to Yocheved and say, hey, I saw the Pharaoh's daughter, and you can go to the uh, palace and suckle Moses. Um, It'd be better with a handmaiden, you know? Great. So uh, you and 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 uh, Larry throughout these verses have been offering very interesting reads about who else may or may not be in the scene as denoted by some of these words. So you're saying the the, the reason why it's not Achoto is that it wasn't Miriam. The, mm-hmm. And, and Alma gets in. Very interesting. Uh, okay, Larry, Diane. Internet problem. So I hope we're I hope we're, we'll be connected. I actually want to take it in a different direction. Oh, you, you went in and out, Larry. Can you try again? You got frozen. Oh, was I frozen? For about six oh. seconds. So you, we heard you say different direction. Okay. So I'll credit Chizkuni for what I'm going to say um, to some extent. But I want to compare the two verses, the previous verse and this verse. So if you look at the previous verse, Vatomer la bat paro. And this verse is, the Tomer La, hold on one second. Um, forgive me. The Tomer Achotav El Bat Paro is the previous verse. So it first says the Achoto, which is the subject of the sentence. So it goes, the, his sister said to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is, is that an indirect object? I don't know what the form is, but it's, it's two part. Yeah. And in the next, in the verse we're looking at, it's the Tomer La, and she said to, to her, to, um, Miriam, to Bat Paro, um, no, not sorry. to Bat. Bat Paro is the subject of Bat Tomer. Bat Tomer La is the sister. So what's right. happening here? is the subject and, ob- and indirect object are inverted. Because in the first case, it's the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter. 
And this one is Pharaoh's daughter said to the sister. Yes. But the order is kept as the sister first and Bapero second. Okay. You see that? Yeah. Now, it doesn't say that she said to the sister. It says she said to her. And then she says Alma. And why would that be? Because Pharaoh's daughter doesn't know that she's the sister. So we have to use La as opposed to Achoto, Achoto. And we have to use Ha'alma instead of Achoto because it's hidden from Pharaoh's sister that this is Moses' sister. It's but don't hidden. thank me. Thank It's hidden. It's Ne'elam, you might even say. From her. It's Ne'elam, right. Uh, great. What a great and, and, and kind of a precise read that, that since the subject of the verb in verse 8 is bat paro, all the words in the verse would make sense from her perspective, as it were, and from, and from what she knows and what she doesn't know. To her, she's just an alma. Great, great, great read. Uh, Barry, Kathy, I know it's Barry, Tova, Marshall. So just a bit of the, the philosophy behind the philology of olam, alma, I was just uh, having fun in my mind as I was hearing the discussion that <clears throat> existence bears its own demise. So uh, sexual prowess, the energy, its purpose for, serves its function, and, and then it's ultimately its demise. So um, it's, it, it, it's all the same. Hmm. It, it, existence and disappearance. Yes, yes. And right. Because existence both followed and is, and, and is succeeded by, by, by disappearance. Uh, Tova Marshall. Uh, yeah, this uh, kind of builds on what people have said uh, in between, but, I, but also I think it raises a question. I, I loved Larry's uh, <clears throat> interpretation of the young, the use of young woman to reflect that she does not. Uh, but Paro does not know this is uh, Moses' sister. Uh, the comment originally that I was going to make was at the end of the sentence adds more to the issue because it's young woman went and called the child's mother rather than their mother or something that continues to acknowledge that relationship. Right. But, but <laughs> if we're interpreting it, and I do like it, uh, that, we're seeing this from Bat Perot's perspective. Therefore, this is the young woman, and she doesn't know she's related to the child. How does she know that the nursing woman is the child's mother? So, if we follow that through and have and put that as the thought of the of Bat Perot, that that she's sending this young woman to get the child's mother, that's acknowledging some knowledge on her part that we haven't dealt with yet. <laughs> At some point. At some point in the verse, what, what Larry offered and now what I see what Norm offered in the chat, it, it, it kind of runs out and the verse comes back to what we know in the story and not only what Bat Paro did. <laughs> um, Marshall. Uh, just going back to Leonard's comment about the word olam, whether how it's understood post-biblically, I really love the Sidur Lev Shalem, where, where the ambiguity of the word olam is mentioned in the Kiddush. Baruch Atadonai, our God, sovereign of time and space. Great. I had not seen that. Yeah, that, it, that, that is really a wonderful rendition of that word. Sovereign of time and space. Terrific. Stevie, and then we're going to go back to Sue and have her read the Rashi we've basically been anticipating. Yeah, just that it, it seems to me that the text needs to at some point tell us that Miriam is too young to nurse a child herself, right? That that is not necessarily self-evident without this, like, this is the verse that happens to, to you know, shove that information into the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, Otherwise she would have just offered herself, you're saying. Or you at least ask the question why she did it. Yeah. Right, yeah. but here she's specifically referred to as Alma, who mm-hmm. therefore couldn't. Um, um, good. Uh, let's um, do what, what it turns out we're going to do exactly what we did last week. We're going to read a Rashi in the last three minutes 
of the class, and then we'll see if we need to go back to it next week. But I promise that next week, if we go back to it, we won't go back yet another verse. Okay, um, Sue, uh, read the four-word Rashi, please. You got to unmute again. The, I did, yes. Ve'telecha alma. Halcha bizriot ve'almut ka'elem. Okay. Uh, Alma says that, that she went in it, she went fast, quickly, and vigorously like a young person. Good. So, Zrizut Lizarez, there's a Mishnaic notion, Zrizim Maktimin La Mitzvah, those who are eager and vigorous and want to show their, 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 their joy of doing mitzvot will run to do a mitzvah. It's why you see, it's why you uh, gen, uh, generally, put up the first wall of your sukkah right after breaking fast on Yom Kippur, the first moment that you're obligated to build a sukkah, that's the next minutes have come up, you run to do it. It's why you see, you know, particularly Haredim washing their hands at the hotel and running to Davin, right? Literally Zrizim. So Halcha, she didn't just go. It's only Rashi saying the noun used to describe her in the scene actually describes the verb, right? Instead of it using a different verb, it's just a but how did she go? She went with Zrizut and Almut, and in order for his comment to make sense, he has to think that we know that one of the usages of, of almut is not just um, disappearance and not just young, but energetic, ke'elem, like a young person. Now, I have a foot um, from one of the other books that I have here, the one that I suggested last week. There's an interesting comment that um, bringing in the Aramaic, maybe we'll end with this. Let me just find it quickly. Um, Elem ayin lamed mem, belashon arami in Aramaic, who lashon omets is the language of the word omets, which we translate as courage. Uh, you know, we, someone mentioned before um, Miriam's chutzpah, like a kind of a chutzpah courage or a courageous chutzpah. Kamo, like the exhortation, rak chazak ve'emats, when Joshua is exhorting the troops. And, you know, when you want to give someone like a, you know, a, a little exhortation before they do something in, in kind of Jew speak, you say, Chazak ve'amatz, go be strong and have courage. That verse in the first chapter of Joshua, for chapter one, verse seven, rak chazak ve'amatz, be strong and of courage, is translated by Onkelis into the Aramaic, shetir gemuhu lechud, only, tikif, strong, like takifu in the adirhu in, in Pesach, ve'alem, so the Aramaic translation of um, emats, be of courage, is alem. So Rashi then reads, or assumedly Rashi reads that back into this verse, that vatele ha'ama, the Torah chooses to describe what's happening here, not with the verb, but with a noun. She went like an, like an alma, running courageously, taking control of the situation, taking control of the scene as she goes and uh, chases the woman. Rashi does not think it's another woman in the scene, although I like Rick's uh, interpretation of it. Um, and, and Rashi wants us to be sensitive to this interesting word choice when it could have been something different. So um, since we did begin a minute or two late and we have a minute or two left, comments or reactions on that Rashi and or this notion of what Ella might have meant in Aramaic. Toba. Um, it just struck me as, as you were mentioning that it seems like throughout the partiot we've been reading, what we have is over and over again, people acting in ways that are in some ways beyond or uncharacteristic or differentiated from their normal selves. We have a Yeled with a voice like a Na'ar. We have a Bat Paro with mercy for the baby. And we have a a the daughter or the sister who is acting with the vigor of a young man or, and, and it all is, is people are acting beyond themselves, which goes back to the earlier comment of God's presence in all of this, that somehow everyone is taken beyond themselves into something higher, more powerful, more spiritual. Yeah. And that's great. Tova. Particularly the, the comparison here of the non-sentient Moshe and the very sentient Miriam who are each um, described in, in, in nearby verses as being uh, older, more vigorous, greater, producing sounds and actions beyond them. I, I, that's a one, I had not thought about that either. Um, great. 
It was a such such uh, sensitive and, and and precise listen to the text today, folks. We're so grateful for your for your contributions. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am, Los Angeles, go to tba.la.org.